Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. All right, well, last week we kicked off a series um, called Good Fight, and we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at this concept. Um, And, of course, a good fight um, is a fight you've won. Um, We don't look on fights where we kind of took a whooping um, and call that a good fight. No, that was a bad fight um, if, if we lost. And so, but the good fight is the fight that we've won. And as we launch this with the resurrection, as we launch this with understanding that the cross was not a place uh, of loss, the, the cross was a place of victory, that the empty grave decrees that victory and that that victory is eternal and that victory is ours. And so we are looking at that, that Jesus is the one who won the good fight, but we have a place for us to walk that out and to embrace the good fight that's been won for us. So let's go ahead, um, crack open your notes, however you're gonna follow along, and we're leading off with this idea that no one has ever fought for you like Jesus. Nobody. Nobody's ever fought for you like Jesus. And I hope you've had somebody fight for you at some point in your life. I hope somebody has come along and has been an advocate for you. Somebody's had your back um, in in life and in some scenarios. But I'm here to tell you, um, no matter how much that person fought for you, nobody, nobody has fought for you like Jesus, because as we looked at last week, that while we didn't care, while we were sinners, while we were doing our own thing and didn't give, didn't care about God at all, Christ died for us. We're not here trying to get God's attention. Our, this activity we do, we're not trying to say, hey, God, I'm ready to be nice. I'm ready to do better. Um, you know, have some forgiveness and some favor at me. No, it, we're not trying to get God's attention. We are responding to the attention that God has given us. He pursued us. He showed up first while we didn't care. And in that, he went to battle on our behalf and he won the good fight. And now our response is to live in the victory that he's won. Let's look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 12. And here Paul um, is writing to his number one disciple. He, this is a, a very intimate letter. It's from one guy to another guy, uh, a father in the faith to a son in the faith. And he's given him some advice. He's given him some counsel. And 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When was that eternal life his? When he made his confession. But what has he got to do? He's got to take hold of it. He's got to receive it. He has to embrace it. That is that good fight of faith. Our fight, the fight of faith, is, to re- is just to simply receive what's already been accomplished on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who won the victory. He's the one who did it. And our fight of faith is to grab a hold and to receive what he's already accomplished for us. He's done the work. He won the battle. He got it all. He won the prize, but we get 
the benefit of it. Now, I have shared with y'all plenty of times um, that I'm not athletic, and I'm comfortable with that, comfortable in my own skin on that. Um, but I grew up in a household and a lineage where Clark men played baseball. They just, the way that life went, they, Clark men played baseball. So um, when I was young and my, my, my parents attributed um, my non-athleticism uh, to just still kind of learning, you know, and they didn't realize that it was actually just didn't have it. Um, they thought, okay, maybe it's there and it just needs to be awakened or something. And so, uh, you know, my, my dad, when I was real little, uh, was part of the, the church softball team. And I remember sitting out to forever out on the bleachers. And so my dad playing church, he's coached the church softball team. And it was just, it was just all sorts of baseball, softball, all this. And finally, I'm of age to do little league. And so my dad gets me signed up for little league. The problem is, is you need some basic athletic ability, some eye-hand coordination, a little bit of foot speed. You need that. I, I don't have that. And so they are putting the teams together, and they are selecting them and trying to make the teams balanced um, at all as, as much as they possibly can. Um, and the team that I ended up on was the Interfirst Bank um, Little League team. And I was one of the last ones put on the roster. I was the, one of those that came along. And um, the team that I was, went on was, a, was an already stacked team. Um, now, there were a lot of solid Little, little baseball players there on my little league team, but there were two that were significant. And there was Stony and Stormy Case, um, which if you know Permian uh, football history, um, I graduated from Permian, don't boot me. And, uh, and so, but uh, Stony and Stormy, you booed anyways, even when the preacher asked. And so, <laughs> but uh, Stony and Stormy um, both led Permian to their last two state football championships. And so uh, Mojo Magic went away after that. And so, um, but they had two state football titles, one in 89 and one in 91 with Stoney and Stormy Case. Both of those guys, future um, state champion quarterbacks on my team. They didn't stop there. Stoney went on to go to the Uni University of New Mexico and won conference championship there. Uh, got drafted into the NFL and played with multiple teams for seven or eight years, was an NFL quarterback for, for, those, for that time period. Stoney ends up being recruited by A&M, was QB1 at A&M for a year. And so these guys were incredible athletes, a future NFL quarterback was there on my little league baseball team. And so as they're looking at this team and saying, where do we put this guy? Um, put him on that team. We need to balance this out a little bit. They've got too much horsepower over there. We need to put Clark on that team. So that's where I end up. So I'm on a team of, of all-stars, just phenomenal athletes. And uh, so we, of course, you know, have all of the practices, get all of that. Coach is, you know, scoping out his talent. Um, and then he sees, you know, what I've got to give. And um, I was good at the bench. I liked the bench. I was comfortable there. I knew what to do there. It was great. Um, you know, if you were on the bench, you still got a popsicle at the end. It was fantastic. And uh, nobody yelled at you on the bench. 
And so I liked it. I liked the bench. There was nothing wrong with that. And so, but in, you know, in uh, Little League, you got to play all the players. Everybody's got to go out there and do something at some point. Uh, so he decides my best spot um, that I can do the least damage is right field in Little League. So he sticks me out in right field. And most of the time, he was right. You know, most of the time, Nothing went over my direction, you know. Um, it helped my prayer life, you know. Like, Lord, no, 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 none of them over here. Well, one day I was obviously not praying right. And so, because, man, the crack of the bat happens, the ball flies over, uh, nobody gets it. It's flying right at me, and all I wanted to do was run away. I was like, I quit, I resign. I'm done. Keep your popsicle. I, it ain't worth it. I'm out of here. And so, uh, but I, I, I stayed the course and I stayed there. And it flies over, hits the ground and starts rolling towards me. So it's on the ground and I, my confidence level went up a little bit. It's like, ah, oh, it's on the ground already. Okay, we're good. They're not expecting me to get them out. So we're, we're all right. And, and then, so I didn't charge the ball. I didn't run and try to close the gap and like make the play quicker. I just stayed back there and just waited. Like, just come on. And so, and I just kind of lined up and miracle of miracles, it rolled into my glove. I lined up right. And so my, my math mind did the trajectory right. And I, I, I got it in there. And then I'm just sitting there like, it's, I've got it. And then I just hurl it. I just, I don't even know that I hurled it to the right person, but I, I did go towards the backstop. I went towards the right direction. And so the ball goes that direction. And um, then the innings do all that happens. And by the time the game's over, uh, we've won the game. Um, I didn't throw anybody out. I didn't catch an out. I just stopped a grounder and threw it the right direction. And so at the end of the game, um, there's the tradition you know, where the, the victor, the winning team, has the game ball and gets to give it to their star player. And the coach is sitting there and has the game ball and is looking at all of these hot rod people who scored runs. I did not get on base. They, they, people who got outs, that was not me. And he looks around and he has the game ball and he says, Brandon Clark, that was a great stop out there with that grounder. You get the game ball. And I was like, oh, man, yes, that's right. That is right. That was critical. That was a critical grounder. You can thank me. And, uh, and so, but I just, I just was like, oh, my gosh, I got it. And all the other kids did it. I really think looking back as an adult, the, the guy was like, this is my one opportunity to award this kid. This is not happening again. Let's just do it. And then it's done. And so, but at the moment, I was like, yes. And so, and that was my, that was my prize baseball possession for, for years and years. But the truth was, the truth was, is that I was not really the victor in that place. I was on a team of victory. Somebody else had won the victory. And because somebody else had won the victory, there were some spoils to be given away. And that, and that coach decided, that, guess what? You know what, Clark? You did the one thing right that you needed to do, and, and you received that ball right into your open hand. And guess what? That's the way it is in our life in Christ. We're on God's team. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the one who won it. And guess what? He's the one who wins the victory, and we get the spoils. We get the game ball. We get the forgiveness. We get the salvation. We get the eternal life. 
Not because we were so awesome, but simply because we just opened our hand and said, I'll take it. That's it. That is it. And that is what this is, living our life in Christ. It starts that way of receiving the victory that's been won on our behalf, and it continues in walking and continuously receiving the victory that's already been won. Our fight is to trust that Jesus won the fight. That's our fight, is to continually trust that what he did was enough. The problem is, is that problems come. And as soon as trouble shows up, um, it doesn't feel like we're victorious. It doesn't feel like the battle's won. In the middle of problems, in the middle of trouble. And uh, let's go ahead and look at John chapter 16, verse 33. And uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Let's just stop right there. That's awesome. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, period. And we immediately could go, Jesus is telling us we're going to have peace. So, man, then I know what that kind of life's going to look like. It's going to look like sitting on the beach or maybe in a beautiful cabin by a stream, wherever it is that you're just serene spot, you know, and then somebody's just taking care of you and bringing you your favorite beverage and you get to get up when you want to get up and go to bed when you want to go to bed and there's no emails and there's no bills and nobody's sitting there yelling at you or hounding at you, not feeling like you're having to prove your value or your worth. And man, peace. That in me, you'll have peace. And then Jesus keeps talking. In this world, you will have trouble. Wait a second, Jesus, I really liked your first sentence. I kind of like that one. In me, you're going to have peace. I like that. But then y'all, you keep talking. That in this world, I'm going to have trouble. Jesus, which is it? Am I going to have peace or am I going to have trouble? And the answer is yes. Yes. We're going to have peace and trouble. But for us with Christ, we can have peace in our trouble. Even in the middle when there are things are coming against us, even in the middle when there's, there's just all sorts of chaos, we can have peace in the middle of our trouble. See, our take heart thing is the vital piece of it. Jesus says, take heart, because he knows, he knows. Did I not finish that scripture, did I? I didn't. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus' immediate advice, after letting us know we're going to have trouble in this world, is to take heart. That's his immediate counsel. In me, you're going to have peace. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Take heart. Why? Because what does the trouble come after? It comes after our heart. Our good fight, the ring that that is fought in, is the ring of our heart. Where is our heart going to be? The battle's already been won. The victory is already his. The question is, is trouble shows up and it's coming after our heart. And his immediate response is for us to take heart. Why? Because he's overcome. Not because you can do it. Not because if you try hard enough, you'll make it. 
take heart because I've overcome. It's a past tense. It's already been accomplished. And we take heart by remembering that God cares for us. That's how we take heart. Because the first thing that begins to, to come at us is begin to wonder if he cares. First Peter 5, 7 tells us this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Why can we cast our anxiety? Not because those issues aren't real. Scriptures say that anxiety shows up, okay? Just because you got some anxiety in your life doesn't mean that all of a sudden you've gone off the rails. The scriptures tell us that when it shows up, cast it onto him because he cares. Not because it's an irresponsible thing to do, not because we're just trying to flee it, but because we're looking at him and knowing he cares, we can put it in his hands. Our problem is, is typically when something that creates anxiety in our life shows up, we tend to turn towards the cause of the anxiety. We turn towards it. We begin to zero in on the source of our anxiety. We want to handle it, deal with it, process it, begin to, to, to make it uh, go away. But what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to turn towards him. That is how we deal with this. Let's look at how the disciples dealt with their moment of uh, wondering if Jesus cared. Here in Mark chapter 4, verse 36, um, we're just going to catch up with them. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him, Jesus, along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern. So here they are. They've headed out. They're on a journey, and Jesus is in their boat. And Jesus is in their boat and he's in the stern. He's at the front part of the boat where the boat is pointed, their destination, where they're trying to get. Jesus is in. When they look towards their destination, where they're trying to go, they see Jesus every time. There's, there's destination and Jesus. How am I getting to my destination? Well, I don't know. There's Jesus right there. You, you can't ask for a better scenario. We all want Jesus in our boat. We want Jesus at the front of our boat. And we want to be able to look, if we're looking at where we're trying to get, we want to see Jesus in that picture, clearly in the center of that picture. That's exactly the framework that exists right here. The disciples in the boat with Jesus, Jesus at the front. Every time they look forward, what do they see? Jesus. See our destination to Jesus. Here's the problem. They didn't like what Jesus was doing in the front of the boat. They thought he ought to be doing something else. Because what was Jesus doing? He was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. There's a storm going on. It's blowing. It's going crazy. And Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep. And it freaks them out. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? They woke him up because they wanted him to do something about it. They believed he had 
power. They believed he had authority. They believed he could do something about it. What they questioned was his caring. Jesus and I look for, you're in my boat. Yeah, I look for you at the front of the boat. But when the storms come, well, you're not handling the storm the way I want you to handle the storm. And so now, I don't even know that you care. You're not handling it the way I want you. I don't even think you care anymore. Here's what I want you to see first and foremost. If you're in a place or you hit a place where you're wondering if God actually cares about you, I want you to know you're in good company. The people in this boat who are wondering if Jesus cared, these are the disciples, the early apostles. They were the leaders of the early church. Every one of them died a martyr's death for their faith in Christ. But they all had their moments as well where they wondered if he actually cared, okay? Just because you hit your spaces where you wonder if God actually cares, especially if you're one who you feel like he's square in your boat. It's like, I can't get him any more in my boat than I know. And I'm still wondering if he cares. We see it. It happens. It doesn't discount you. What we need to do is learn what, is, what happens. We see Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves with just three little words, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What was the place that revealed their faith? Wondering if Jesus cared. That was their place. As soon as they were convinced he didn't care, their faith went out the door with it. We can never cast our anxieties, the stuff that holds us down in life, if we're not convinced that he cares. Verse 41, it says, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Notice, the storm's over. Storm's over. Jesus responded in the way they wanted him to. He fixed it. But they're still terrified. There's still a place of fear. The storm's over. Jesus did what he wanted them to do. But there says they're still, they're still wrapped with terror. They're still terrified. See, here's the thing is the enemy will come in in a place and try to instill a fear during a temporary situation that plants permanent fear in your life. He wants to come in and use a temporary situation and plant a permanent spirit of fear. And the answer to that is being sure that God cares about you. There are so many people in life who just their daily actions are guided by this gnawing fear, this underlying fear that just won't go away. There are those who, their, their finances are guided by fear. And you look at them and you, you, you look at what they have and if you were able to glance and be able to hack into to their bank account and see what was there, you go, oh my gosh, that person should never be afraid, should never have financial fears. You see their Roth IRA, you see their stuff that's in there, and you're like, man, there's, there's no way that they should be afraid. 
but they check those accounts every day. They check everything every day. Why? Because a spirit of fear came in and all of their wise decisions is being motivated, not out of stewardship to handle what God has entrusted them with well and honoring God. It's out of a spirit of fear that somehow all of a sudden something's gonna come in and wipe it all out and take it away. There are people in relationships that you look at them and man, their smile at their loved ones all the time. Get up early and make breakfast, get everything in line, handle everything, very, very giving with their time, very generous with their praise. You're like, man, they're just so loving. And then their background, there's the spirit of fear at work. It says, man, if I don't keep a smile on, if I don't be easy to get along with, if, if I don't do these things for them, they're going to reject me. They're not going to like me. They're, they're going to they're gonna abandon me. They're going to walk out. And all of a sudden, all of these kind, sweet things are being motivated by this underlying spirit of fear that the enemy came in in a temporary situation and put a permanent fear in. And everything's calm on the outside, but the terror went nowhere. Folks, the victory that we have in Christ is to give us peace, to drive that kind of fear out so we can be free to genuinely love, to genuinely be good stewards, to genuinely do the things God's called us to do, not with any hint of fear associated whatsoever. See, when we take our fights to God, it helps us to not make the mess messier or the trouble more troublesome. Because if you're anything like me, man, I tell you what, I'm good at making trouble more troublesome. I'm good at making a mess messier. I can do it. I can do it on all sorts of stuff. I can do it relationally. I can do it on home projects. There's a magic window between when we have a plumbing problem and when we call a plumber. And it's the Brandon can fix it window. And there's the space to where we just, we tend to, when we have an issue, we have trouble in our life, we, we analyze it. We're, we're thinking beings. God created us in his image to be able to think and analyze and make decisions. And, and we are core choosers. That's part of what makes us special. The problem is, is we tend to make ourselves Lord most of the time and begin to go, okay, I've still got a plan. I still think this can work. And we work every angle we can work until it is such a wreck that then we go, God, I, I don't know what to do. You know, it'd be amazing as if we had a couple of good ideas on how to handle some things and we got God's input on it early. God, what should I do on this? This is kind of what I'm thinking. We do it relationally. Do it in life. Do it in all sorts of things. How amazing would it be if we would just take these things, these, these messes and problems, and we just bring them to God earlier than we naturally want to? Because we'll wait until the very end. I had a plumbing problem one time when I was trying to figure out how to solder and, and sweat some joints and had some copper stuff. And, and I finally, I'd mess it up, and it would still leak, and I'd have to cut it off. And I finally got it so short, there was nothing sticking up anymore. There was no copper there was nothing there. And then I have to call the plumber. Well, guess what? My plumbing bill would have been a lot lower if I'd have called the plumber when there was some copper sticking up. It would have been a lot lower. But then when I finally just went where there's just, that, there, nope, it's, it's somebody else, tag out. Then all of a sudden it was way more costly, way more involved. If we will take our issues to God earlier, 
it is amazing that we'll walk in victory earlier. And David, he shows us what it means to be able to, to fight the good fight of faith. Um, we've covered in a previous series recently, uh, David and his men and the burning of Ziklag. But just to give you what we're about to look at in 1 Samuel 30, um, this is before David's King David, and um, he's got his mighty men. They're out doing their thing. They have battles, they, and they would get the winnings from the battles and bring them back, and their home was in Ziklag. And he had a few hundred mighty men and their families, and so a small army and all that that meant. So everybody had a home and wife and children. And David's out with his men. And while they're gone, um, another uh, group comes through, raids Ziklag, takes everybody's wives and children, all their stuff, and burns their houses while they're gone. And so when we show up here, they have returned. And of course, everybody's distraught. Right before this, it says they cried to where they had no more strength to cry. Not that they didn't have any more tears. They just could not physically move to cry anymore. They were just that broken on having their families gone and, and just in despair. And then their leader, um, they're not happy with him. And let's look at verse six. It says, and it greatly distressed David for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, each one for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in Jehovah his God. In the middle of the nastiest, most horrendous mess. And these guys that are around him, they're just ready to kill David and move on. And David doesn't have anybody cheering him up. David doesn't have anybody pep talking him. David doesn't have any of that. And David encourages himself in the Lord. This is part of us learning and to take heart. And you're like, Pastor Brandon, that is not fair. That is not fair. You cannot compare us to David. It, David was a man after God's own, own heart. He's in the lineage of David. They, he's even in the prophecies that Jesus took the throne of his father, David. I mean, they're just so intertwined. And yes, I know David had his mistakes and the Bathsheba thing was horrendous and, and everything around that. But man, he was still David. He was still David. Of course, the guy after you know, God's own heart is in the middle of his stuff, going to encourage himself in the Lord. Of course, he's going to be able to do that. He's just a little perfect little David. Well, let's look at perfect little David and his interactions with some of his dark moments. Let's look at Psalm 10, verse 1, written by David. David's having a rough day, and Psalms hold it up for us. It says, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That is the opening line of his prayer. God, where are you? I'm in the middle of trouble. I'm in the middle of issues, and I don't see you anywhere around. Man after God's own heart, beginning his prayer to God. He doesn't just do it once. Let's look at Psalm 22. This is a Psalm Jesus quotes. Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? Psalm 42, 9, I say to God, my rock. I say to God, my rock, you're my rock, you're what I built my life on. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? 
Psalm 44, verse 43, awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? He's frustrated. He's irritated. He is like, God, I, I believe you're out there, but what's going on? What's going on? I don't see you at work. Here's the thing. It's no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're dealing with or how frustrated you are about it, take it to God. You're like, well, I'm too irritated to talk to God right now. I, this is in our Bible. I think we can take our frustrations to God. Like, I don't have anything nice to say to God. Is this nice? How would you like it if your kid walked up to you and said, uh, Hey, how long are you going to let me suffer over here? You going to ignore my misery? When am I going to get some lunch? Am I alone in this house? My kid talks to me like that. It ain't going to work. But God rolled with it. God understood that he would rather us begin the conversation then feel like we got to holy ourselves up and get everything before we can talk or we'll stay isolated forever. If we don't have permission to talk to God with the way we are, then we don't have permission to talk to God. Because on your best day in your own self, you still ain't got it. So guess what? Your worst day, he still wants you to talk to him too. So here it is on their worst days. Psalm 42, five, why my soul are you downcast? He begins to make some turn. Why? So disturbed within me, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. David begins to make the turn. He's like, nope, you're disturbed, you're frustrated, you're upset. Put your hope in God. He does it again in Psalm 43. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my God, my Savior, and my God. Now let's go back to Psalm 10, the one we opened up with, Psalm 10, 1. Why, Lord, do you stand afar off? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Let's jump to verse 17, same Psalm. That was how he started his prayer. Here we go, he's 17 verses later. You, Lord, hear the desires of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that the mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. He opened up with some frustration. He opened up, but by the end, he's like, God, you listen, you're there, you defend. Folks, when we need to take heart, we need to open our mouths because it's already happening right here. Let's just go ahead and voice it to him and allow in the conversation for him to lead and to guide and to change some things. When Weston was 16 years old, this was end of 2015, we were still in the movie theater and we'd have to get up early, take a trailer and, and go. And so I would leave the house about, 726 to be exact is what we shot for every Sunday. We had it down. And so, um, so we would go and then we would stop by Stripes and pick up some, uh, pick up some burritos and uh, then go over and do the movie theater thing. 
and we would uh, go and and uh, set everything up. Well, I was a little ahead of schedule, and it was 6.15. I'm not normally out in front at 6.15, so I walk out, and the uh, um, it's just pitch black. It's, it's night. The sun has not come up yet. So I'm headed out, and as I open the front door of my house, um, there is this SUV that's driving along super slow, just like really creepy slow in front of my house in the dark. And then it gets to in front of my house, and then it puts it in reverse, and you see the white lights on in the reverse, and it's backing up. And it backs up and lines up right with my, with my walkway. Well, I was still on my porch, and the porch light was on, and all of a sudden the window rolls down, and this guy says, hey, buddy. And so, you know, I, I did what you do when, you know, you're in the woods and there's a big bear. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, stand under the light, let the shadows hit you, make it look like I have pecs and stuff. You know, look, look like I'm swole. Like, yeah. And so he begins to talk to me. And uh, so during the conversation, it comes up, you know, that I, we're, I'm like, I'm about to go to get ready to set up for church. And he's like, you're going to church this early? And... Uh, so he's like, come here. And uh, I'm like, he's like, I know you. Okay, and so I walk up to him, and then he sticks his hand out the window, and he's still in the car, and, and he sticks his hand out the window, and it's a big old hand. And he shakes my hand. He's like, I know you. He's like, I used to play on your young adult basketball team back years ago. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I, I remember you now. And he's squeezes my hand ridiculously hard and then he just pulls my arm into his vehicle and all of a sudden my, we're like shaking hands I'm all the way in there and I'm pinned up against his car and so I'm looking to see if somebody's going to jump out of the back seat and like take my wallet because I can't go anywhere I can't do anything and it is uncomfortable and he's just sitting there and he's just squeezing my hand and he's like just keeps saying I know you I know you and then all of a sudden I realize like this guy is like getting super intense. He's like, God meant for this. And then he starts to cry. And he's like, my life is so blanky, blank, messed up. I've just blanked this and blanked that. And I'm just this. And God meant for this. I need God. I need God. And he hits the steering wheel. I need God. And Weston is now on the front steps. And Weston's doing the grizzly bear thing. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's 16-year-old Weston's ready to go jump in the scrap. I told him later when he told me that, I was like, you're going to have to go get Keenan. It's going to take all three of us. <laughs> it's going to be a fight. And so then the guy ends up getting out of the car, and he just puts his big old arms around me. He just hugs me, and he is squeezing too hard. And he's just sitting there and going, pray for me, pray for me. And so I just start praying for him. I just start praying for him. He's like, I just got married. I want to be a good husband. I'm a, I'm a terrible husband. I'm a terrible husband. And he just starts saying, I've done so many bad things. And he's just weeping. And he's like, I need you, God. I need you. Right in the middle of our street, just crying out. He's like, I don't even know how to do it. I said, just pray to God. So he just starts praying. God, I'm blanking messed up. I've effed my life up. I'm this, I'm this. And he's just, just very... R-rated prayer, as far as language goes. <laughs> but so raw and so real. And the truth is, if that prayer was to happen at the altar of most churches, there would have been people come and try to shut it down. 
But I'm telling you, it was so incredible that that guy just using the language he knew, the what he was dealing with in his moment, I'm telling you, man, there's a breakthrough. He's just bawling. He's just weeping and just weeping right there. He's just, pray for me some more. Pray for me some more, Pastor. And I prayed for him and set up an appointment to meet with him later in that week. But I'm here to tell you, if he had had to wait to try to show up to meet God right here in some sweet little spot with some sweet little language, it would have never happened. But God orchestrated for him to meet what he needed, when he needed it, and be able to connect. Why? Because God loves us, and he's there for us, and he wants us to connect with him. This isn't about doing everything sweet and perfect. It's about being real and honest, and sometimes it's raw, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. But I'm here to tell you, we purpose to be a church that you can be where you're at so that you can get where you need to go. Because if you can't start where you are, you can't get anywhere. And so we're going to start where we are. So on our darkest day, in our deepest trouble, God is there for us. James 5.13, if anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of anxiety. That's a lot of mess. As it is written, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our bottom line today is our fight is to rest in his victory. That's our fight. Our fight is to rest that he's won the fight. Day in, day out. That's how we start this. That's how we walk it out. It's to do that. Why? He's given us the grace for today, the patience for today, the wisdom for today, all that he, we need for life and godliness he's given us. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.